I'm going to start the lesson today with, with a response to the question that was raised uh, by Art on the, on the occasion of Moses striking the rock. Uh, it was on the radio program yesterday, if you listen to it. Um, and I think it's, it's an important enough issue that we can talk about it. You often hear me say to you that the Old Testament is all about the coming of Jesus Christ. It's one Bible. The world does not understand this. Our Jewish brethren don't understand it. But it is one Bible from Genesis to Revelation. God put this Bible together, gave through the Holy Spirit the words that you see in this page, inspired by God, only using the hand of man to write it. And it's all about the coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, and there you find it right there in Genesis. And there's, there's a number of stories in Genesis that relate to the coming of Jesus Christ. I've spoken on that before about Abraham on the third day, the issue of the third day, uh, and as, that his son was going to be sacrificed on the third day, uh, and that God spared him on the third day, and that was effectively a, a typological lesson that God was giving them to expect something great coming on the third day. Death would be defeated, just as death was, def was defeated uh, as it came to the taking of Isaac, Death would be defeated also when Jesus died on the cross and was ultimately resurrected. And so now the, the Jewish people uh, have just come through the Red Sea. Um, this comes out of uh, Exodus chapter 17. They've come through the Red Sea, uh, and after they came through the Red Sea, they had this great victory, and now God takes them from where they were comfortable and takes them and leads them out into a desert. And now in this desert, in this desert, there is no water. Uh, and as a result of there being no water, uh, they turn against Moses. Geez, that's a shocking turn of events. <laughs> uh, if, if you read the first five books of the Bible, pretty much about every five minutes, they turn against Moses. Uh, and that's why they spent 40 years wandering around in the wilderness because they never got it through their heads as to what God was teaching them. Well, eventually they got it through their heads. After 40 years, anybody over 20 died. How do you like that? So if you started this venture and left Egypt and you were over 20, you never got to put your foot into the promised land. And by the way, that included Moses and his brother and his sister. Uh, and so all of them in some ways were under the judgment of God. Uh, and so uh, it's an important lesson. But now here they are. They, they need water. There's three million people, according to most theologians out there. You can imagine. There are no water tanks, no water cars, no reservoir. What are they going to do? Well, of course, they, they, they start uh, going against Moses and, and haranguing Moses. And so Moses cries out to the Lord. He cries out to the Lord, Lord, I need your help. Um, and I, I just opened my, my Bible to Exodus 17 here, verse 4. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. 
And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord uh, among us or not? And the water came out and they were all uh, had plenty of water coming from that rock. Now, Paul writes later on in the New Testament, I don't have this exact citation in front of me now, but he writes later that that rock was Jesus Christ. And I want to explain to you why that's important. That rock was typologically Jesus Christ. And the reason for that is this. In the Bible, water is often used symbolically to signify the Spirit of God. Water, the Spirit. And so water being that essence of life that is critical. They were dying. They wouldn't have lived without water. Then God says, strike the rock. The rock is symbolically Jesus Christ. The striking of the rock effectively is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And why I can say this and why it makes sense is that uh, some, some time later, some years later, uh, as they're traversing through the desert, Moses is again confronted by the people. They need water. They need water. And now it's getting ugly. Uh, and God says to Moses, speak to the rock. Speak to the rock and you will have water. And Moses, in a fit of anger and pique, why not? being assaulted by these people, loses his mind, takes the staff, and strikes the rock. Water flows out of the rock. But Moses had disobeyed God's will. Why did God tell him to speak to the rock the second time and not strike the rock? Because Jesus can only be crucified one time. Only one time Christ is crucified, once and for all, for all of us, across the board, for the entire world. That's when Christ was crucified. The crucifixion gave life eternal. The crucifixion gave us water for life. Not only water in this world, but spiritual water. The water in which you'll never grow thirsty, as he said, as he said to the Samaritan woman at the well. And so here it is, 1,300 years before Jesus would be born, and God is demonstrating what would happen even to the point of the fact that there would be a Savior that would come who would give life eternal, who would ultimately be punished and sacrificed. But once he's punished and sacrificed, you don't go back and do it a second time. Now you speak to the rock. Or in essence, you pray to the rock. And you submit to the rock. All of it being uh, clearly indicative of God's plan for his people and for us. This is a very, very poignant story, which is why I, I, I took the time to explain it. It was on yesterday's radio broadcast. Um, and, and Paul said this. Paul spoke uh, eloquently about what that was, that the rock was Jesus Christ. And so I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, giving it. Does any of you have that citation? Thank you. First Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 4. Let's just turn there because this is important. This is Im I view something like this, a question that comes up to me this morning, as an interruption by the Holy Spirit. All right? That, that, that somebody needs to hear this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verse 4. 
We'll read from verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, and this is Paul, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered all over the desert. That that rock was Christ. Christ was there through the Holy Spirit. He was there. And so here's the thing. What happens when we disobey God's will? This was a big deal. This was a big deal. Uh, Because here, God had said to Moses, you don't strike the rock. You speak to the rock. And Moses struck the rock. What would happen to Moses? Well, as a result of that, God said to Moses, you will not be allowed to walk into the promised land. Now, a lot of you are saying, oh, man, this is, isn't this too severe? Hey, let's look at this guy. God, he gave it all up for you. He took the Jewish people, three million. He, took, he, he handled all kinds of insults and persecutions and suffering, and yet for that one stupid, mistimed act, God, you're not going to let him into, walk into the promised land? Well, let me say one thing first. Moses is in the promised land in heaven, okay? He has a very prominent seat up there in heaven, one of the great patriarchs of all time. But in this world, when you violate God's will, especially as it relates to the elevation of his son Jesus... That's a serious thing. That's a serious thing. And at the same time, he was a spiritual leader who is, who is leading people. And so spiritual leaders are under a greater unction to demonstrate God's will in their lives. You know, when you have a spiritual leader fall, he takes thousands of people with him. All right? Don't you think that God has a greater uh, target on people like that? Yes, they receive greater blessings, but at the same time, they have greater responsibilities. And so this is important for you to understand this. And so you see it even here in the life of Moses. This is a very important passage of Scripture. What does it show you? It shows you there's one Bible. It shows you that God intended the New Testament and the Old Testament to be tied together. It shows you that Christ was there from the very beginning. He was there in creation. He was there with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was there as they came out of the Red Sea. He was there at the time that they needed water. Jesus was there throughout all of this, as Paul says it. He is the rock. He is the rock. That's the very rock upon which our faith is is settled. Make no mistake about it. And so I hope that in some ways this this gives you some clarity and some wisdom on this important issue. If you get a chance, you want to read more about it. It's incredibly uh, insightful. uh, And you can listen to that lesson that's on our website. You can listen to that as well. Thank you for that that question. Now let's go to the lesson that we're we're going to study today, the ongoing lesson of the life of David. I want to finish up 1 Samuel chapter 22 first. Um, And I want to start with, uh, effectively, uh, the killing of the priests at Nob. And you know that at Nob, the the priests were there, the high priests were there, and and along with the uh, associate priests. And David had gone there to seek food, to seek shelter, uh, to seek aid. Uh, And as a result of him going there, word got back to Saul, 
and Saul has decided he's going to wipe them out. He's going to kill them. I mean, can you imagine the level of disdain and anger uh, by someone who had been anointed by God to go out and kill the priests? I mean, it's pretty serious. So take a look at 1 Samuel uh, chapter 22. We're going to read from verse 16. But the king said, you will surely die, Ahimelech. That was the high priest. You and your father's whole family. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials were not willing to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Amen for that. The king then ordered Doeg, and we talked about Doeg being a bad dude, an Edomite, all right? You turn and strike down the priests, he tells Doeg. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men, priests, who wore the linen ephod. He also put, the, put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, with its men, women, its children, and infants, its cattle, donkeys, and sheep. That's a horrible story, isn't it? Really, honestly. And Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, son of Ayatub, escaped and fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, That day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your father's whole family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who is seeking your life is seeking mine also. You will be safe with me. You see the heart of David. I am responsible. I am responsible. No, you're not responsible. There's evil afoot. You went and visited them and asked for help, uh, and maybe that might not have been within the will of God, but there were far greater forces going on here uh, in terms of this killing. And I'm going to show you now, I'm going to connect two sections of Scripture that foretold and prophesied this very event uh, uh, that, was, that took place some 50 or 60 years, maybe 100 years, after the original event. Turn, if you would, to chapter, in the same 1 Samuel, turn to uh, chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3. Eli. And let me set it up. Eli. Actually, we're going to start with chapter 2. Eli was the high priest. He had two sons. They were wicked. All right? Even though they were priests and he was the high priest, Eli did not properly discipline his children. And these high priests effectively used the ministry to fatten their bank accounts. Ooh, gee. I never heard of that before. <laughs> Must be a pretty serious sin. You're going to see how serious it is. So what they would do is they were taking gifts that were given uh, to, for the sacrifice and appropriating much of it for themselves, all right? And God had warned Eli uh, to, to uh, punish his sons, and Eli refused to do it. And so what you're going to see here is a story of God putting his judgment down uh, on Eli and his children because they had violated the, the will of God. Uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, we read as follows. Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. Now, they're priests, remember. Now, it was the practice of the priests with the people that whenever anyone offered a sacrifice, and while the meat was being boiled, the servant of the priest would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand. He would plunge it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot 
and the priest would take for himself whatever the fork brought up. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the servant of the priest would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. How about that? All right, so before you even give the sacrificial meat up, give me my part. I want my part. I want my part. Um, and in verse 17, it says, The sin of the, of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Whenever you see people treating God's will, God's word with contempt, it becomes a very serious event, a very serious event indeed. Uh, and that's what you see here, uh, this serious, serious contempt. And so... Moving on, we'll look here, uh, continuing on with verse 29 in that chapter. All right, uh, and the words come. Let's start with verse 27. Now a man of God, we don't know who this is, it's an unnamed man of God, came to Eli and said to him, this is what the Lord said, did I not clearly reveal myself to your father's house when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? And when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh, I chose your father out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, meaning Aaron, to go up to my altar to burn incense as to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your father's house all the offerings made with fire by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel, therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and your father's house would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. How do you like that? All right. Even though they had previously been promised a place of honor, previously been promised to, um, to ministry. The time is coming when I will cut Short your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your family line. Underline that. There will not be an old man in your family line. Not just you, not just your son, but in the ages to come in that family line, there will not be an old man in that line. Now, this is a very sobering thing. You almost never see God visiting the sins of the fathers on the sons and the subsequent uh, inhabitants. You don't see that. But what you see here is the profound depth of this sin, actually taking God's property. I mean, it's similar to what Ananias and Sapphira did. All right? You're stealing from God. You can't steal from God because there's a, there's a tremendous judgment. And the judgment here is that you didn't respect my, my gifts. You didn't respect my altar. And now no one in your family is going to live to be an old man. Uh, and you will see, verse 32, and you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done in Israel, in your family line there will never be an old man. Wow. Wow. And so God says, and God does. Uh, and the subsequent verses on that 
you'll see in chapter 3, turn if you would to verse 11. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. At that time I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Now, what happens next? We don't have to read that part, but what happens next is that the Ark of the Covenant is taken in captivity by the Philistines. And in the, as a result of that, Eli's two sons are killed on the same day. Killed on the same day. Now the news comes to Eli, and you read this passage where Eli is sitting in a chair, uh, in, in a, almost on a porch-like uh, uh, apparatus where he lives, and the chair is somewhat tilted. And a messenger comes to Eli and said, I have bad news for you. Your two sons were just killed. And in shock, the chair flips over backwards, and Eli breaks his neck and dies. Wow. Wow. Now, why do I tie it back to where we are here in chapter uh, 22? I tie it back because the essence of what happened to the priests at Nob is that they were part of the family line of Eli. And so just like Eli had, just like uh, the God had prophesied to them that I will do something that will make the ears of everyone in Israel tingle, what do you think they heard and what do you think happened when they found out that the entire priestly line at Nob was wiped out? And now I give you the backstory. okay? And so here's the important part of this lesson. David says, I am responsible. David, you made a mistake. And your submission to God in your heart is good. But there are far more things going on here. God had decreed a judgment that was going to take decades to carry out. But it was carried out at that time. Evil, evil was used to do God's will. God allowed Doeg to come in there, an evil man to come in. But make no mistake about it, this is part and parcel of God's prophecy about visiting this upon the family of Eli. Now, you're, some of you are saying to me, well, does this go on forever? No, I don't think it goes on forever. I don't find any evidence of this after, after this. That was the judgment of God, uh, and it was taken care of. But you see how, I mean, you really see, don't you, how God, how God pronounces judgment, how God warns you, how God leads you, how God loves you, how he cares for you. And he says, don't do this. Don't go there. And yet, we, how do we do? We blithely ignore it. Don't you realize that there are judgments when we blithely ignore the will of God in our lives? I'm begging you today, and I'm speaking to myself, Lord, help me to, to, to worship you and to submit to your will in my life. I don't want to see these kind of things happen. I want to I be the kind of person that, that echoes your will and brings others to God. And here's the point. When you have a position of responsibility, God expects you to be a leader, not a stumbling block. What is it like if God knows, if, if people know you come out to Bible study on Monday, you're going to church on Sunday, they see all these good things, and yet you wind up leading a reckless life. 
You say things that are hurtful. There's no love in your life. You don't see love. You see bitterness and anger and rage. You think that's advancing the cause of Christ. You think people in your neighborhood say, oh, that guy's great. I really would like to be more like him, spend more time with him. No, that's not what happens. And so you have become a stumbling block. Even as many of you are praying, Lord, use me. I want to use you, he says. But I can't use somebody that's living a life like that. Do you understand why if you want to be used by God, you have to say to God, God, change me. Help me, Lord. Make me more conscious of these issues in my life. Make me, make me be more penitent. Help me to be more merciful. Help me to be more loving. There's not one of us here that can't say those words. All right? And here's the point. Every day of your life, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you should be convicted. All right? Every day of your life. You know, years ago, before you were really mature in your walk with God, you'd go to church on Sunday, but then Sunday afternoon, you'd, you'd do whatever the heck you want to do, right? You'd do whatever you want to do. You didn't care. You, you know, words would come out of your mouth. The language would come out of your mouth. You weren't careful about your language. If, you know, if somebody irritated you, you, you told them off. You had no problem doing all those things. Now you understand that God wants you to be restrained. He wants you to show love. And you recognize it, that this doesn't happen all at once. It happens over a lifetime of walking with God, testing with God, sacrificing with God. Uh, and that's the essence of what he wants. You want to be used by God? Then be the kind of vessel that he can use. Be the kind of vessel that he can use. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. As I said this morning to, to a dear brother, we were talking about this. The, the, the essence of being used by God is total submission to his will. You want to be used by God, you have to totally submit to his will. And what do I mean by that? I mean that you have to say to God, Lord, speak to me. Tell me what you want me to do. Tell me what you want me to do. And Father, I will do it. When you say that and you commit to, to God in that way, he will pour his will into your heart. He will use you in ways that you could never imagine possible because it's no longer about you. You're not promoting yourself. Oh, look at me. Oh, man, I'm so important in the things of God. Man, God, God's so lucky to have me. God is so lucky to have you. I heard somebody say once, I am a righteous man. I am a righteous man. Put your face in the dust. You're looking at the wrong person. You're looking in the mirror and you're thinking you're seeing righteous. I'm going to tell you, you need to see Jesus in the mirror. Because when you see Jesus in the mirror, you can't look back. Because you see the sins of your life. When Jesus, you know, the Lord said, your righteousness is like filthy rags. Your righteousness is like filthy rags. Look, I don't want to sound like I'm an old fire and brimstone preacher. All right? You know, somebody said, why not? I mean, I'm telling you what God is laying on my heart. And I always tell you this, and I mean it. I'm preaching to me first. What you hear right now is me preaching to John. All right? I'm preaching to John. I'm speaking to what John needs. All right? And I know what John needs, and it's about submission and putting my life before him and putting my face in the dust. And if what I'm saying to me bounces off me and hits you, well, then that's good. All right? 
but that you see this story here, and you see it. And, and what I love about David, about what we're studying, I mean, look at this. This guy is going to go 15 years from the time that he's anointed to be the king of Israel, 15 years fleeing for his life. And you will never hear him say a negative word about God. He will never blame God. He will never shake his fist at God. He will always love God and ask for help and explanation. And that's what God wants. He understands that you don't know what's happening in your life, that you don't know the issues that are coming across. You don't want to suffer. You don't want to be persecuted. You don't want to go to the doctor and get a bad diagnosis. You don't want to be separated from your family. None of us want to go through that. But we live in an evil world, and God is directing our steps. And in some of us, God is testing us, and we have to know that. And so you see this here, this so, so clear in this life of David, and you see the judgment of God at the same time. And so uh, David wrote Psalm 52 regarding this tragedy uh, and acknowledged God's mercy and goodness in his personal favor, favor. He was filled with shame and grief for causing the death of the 85 priests. But he trusted, put his trust in God uh, despite what happened by Doeg. Just turn briefly to, to uh, Psalm 52. And this is written shortly after this event. It shows you the heart of this man. This is a heart that we need to emulate. Psalm 52. Why do you boast of evil, you mighty man? Why do you boast all day long? You are a disgrace in the eyes of God. He's talking now about Doeg. Your tongue plots destruction and is like a sharpened razor. You who practice deceit, you love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking the truth. You love every harmful word, oh, you deceitful tongue. And isn't it amazing now when you get the backstory of what's going on when you read the Psalms? Doesn't the Psalm come alive now? I've read this Psalm for years, my whole life, and I really never understood the backstory, the context of what it was about. And now you see it. Now you see the heart of a man who has gone through a terrible issue, and you see how he's dealing with it. Uh, verse 4, you love every harmful word, O you deceitful tongue. He's basically there bemoaning the fact that evil has surrounded him, and, and evil has percolated up in his life. Verse 5, surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous will see and fear. They will laugh at him, saying, here now is the man who did not make God his stronghold, but trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. You see that? The affirmation that God ultimately makes things right, that while things in the short term don't look like there's justice being dispensed. But God has a long-range sense of justice. Tell that to Eli. All right? Tell that to Eli and the family. God sees long-range, and there is a long-range justice. So when you see people who you know who are blithely living an evil life, blithely, blithely ignoring the will of God, I want to tell you and assure you something that there is an unseen hand of justice. You don't want to live like that. You, want to, you don't want to live like that. You want to pray for those people. Continuing on. But look at what he says here. But I, verse 8, I am like an olive tree, flourishing in the house of God, trusting in God's unfailing love, 
forever and ever. I will praise you forever for what you have done. In your name, I will hope, for your name is good. I will praise you in the presence of your saints. What a prayer. Just think about where he was. He felt responsible because an 85 priests were wiped out because he stopped there. A whole family is wiped out. A whole town is destroyed and burned down. All the animals, all the livestock, uh, all wrecked and destroyed. And he views that as his own personal failing. And now you see him acknowledging the wonder of God. But I'm like an olive tree. Why would he say I'm like an olive tree? Because an olive tree was, was special. An olive tree would survive no matter what happened to it. I, I did some studying on this. Uh, the olive tree was the most important tree in ancient Israel because it was a f- source of food, light, oil came from the olive tree, hygiene, and healing. Olive trees develop very slowly but live for hundreds of years. You got that? They develop very slowly, just like you in your spiritual walk. They develop very slowly. Uh, and they grow in almost any condition from very hot and wet to very cold and sandy. It is a virtually indestructible tree. Even when it is cut down or burned, new shoots will emerge from the roots. Olive trees and the olive are regarded as a symbol of beauty, strength, divine blessing, and prosperity. I am like an olive tree. That's what David just said. And when you are with God, when you stand with God, you are like an olive tree. He will sustain you. He will bless you. He will protect you. Even when this evil goes around you, even when you see uh, horrific acts take place, God will lift you up. And so it's important for you to understand that, to see God's will in your life uh, as you come to consider these verses. And so all of this, all of this is a lesson that David received in the cave of Adullam. All of it. Uh, and and uh, there was another psalm that David wrote that spoke also, again, to these issues, these overwhelming issues uh, that came out of the cave of Adullam. Turn to Psalm 142. Psalm 142. Psalm 142, uh, verse 3. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who know my way. In the path where I walk, men have hidden a snare for me. So acknowledging the fact that even though men were out to destroy him, that God was with him, that God walked with him. That's a promise God makes to you today. Uh, Look at verse 4 as you see the sense of desertion and loneliness. Even godly people go through this. Godly people get depressed. Godly people have down days. Don't think that that's an anomaly. That's not an anomaly. You're you're living in a sea of evil. What do you think happens? Verse 4, look to my right and see no one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. Have you ever felt like that? That you're by yourself? That nobody really cares about you? That you're living alone in a life that people really aren't there for you? When you feel like that, you need to understand God is right there next to you. He's walking with you. If you've walked with him. If you've walked with him. 
And we talked about this on Sunday, about establishing the relationship with the Holy Spirit, where you're constantly being filled and refilled. And you see it here in the essence of, of David's life. Uh, verse 6, going again, Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue, pursue me, for they are too strong for me. This is a guy who's suffering depression. And why not? There's several thousand soldiers coming to destroy him and kill him. And now he's in this cave. His family has joined him in this cave. There's three or 400 men who have come there also uh, who, are, who are looking for help. And here he is. He's the leader of this motley crew. All right? Misfits is the right word. He's the leader of this misfit. I'm depressed. God, I'm depressed. Help me. This is important for you to understand that in your Christian walk, God sees that. He knows that. It's not a sin to be depressed. It's not a sin to have down days. But it is outside of the will of God to continue to wallow and wallow and not put it before Jesus Christ. And I recognize that some of that is uh, pharmaceutical and pharmacological. I understand that. I'm not saying that, that I don't believe that. I believe that. But I'm telling you that as a general walk of your life, you're going to have down days. Here it is. Here's the proof of the down days in every, in every way. And you read this psalm and you see it, uh, and when you get a chance, you can read it at home, the essence of, of, of what it's about. And so what did David learn as a result of the cave of Adalon? He learned that even when he was not faithful to God, God remained faithful to him. Even when he was doing things that were outside of God's will, when he went into Philistia uh, and, and posed as an insane person, and then uh, did things that he, that he manufactured of his own will, trying to save himself because of his own talents, and he did that without relying on God. God still stayed with him. So I want to say that to you this morning, that I want you to know the fact that even if, in fact, you've, you've gone away from God's will in your life, that it's very easy to come back, that God loves you. He's there for you. He has not abandoned you. Even when you abandon him, he does not abandon you. God will not abandon you. He will be, be, be with you. What else, did he, what else did he learn? He learned that when God is all that you have, he's all that you need. If God is the only thing that you have in your life, then you have everything that you need. When you think you have no help, no support, no network of people, nobody there standing beside you, I want to assure you something. You have the greatest network ever. You have the creator of the universe. You have the creator of God himself, life. God is there with you and for you. And he is sufficient in every possible situation. He, his strength, is enough for you in everything that you do and every place that you will go. God is greater than any enemy that you will ever face. Listen to what I just said. God is greater than any enemy you will ever face. And I include that as to bad health diagnosis. Because let's face it, we're all at the age now where, where we hesitate going to the doctor. Right? You're not, you know, most of us are not going to get a bronze award from the doctor. Oh, you're looking good. You're doing good. I can't believe how good you are. I want to take a picture of you, put it on the wall of my office. I am feeling good when I look at you. You know, the problem is we know we're going to get some negative news, right? So we try to avoid that if at all possible, right? 
But I'm going to assure you something, that God is with you when you go to the doctor. That even when you get the bad news from the doctor, God is going to be there and lift you up. And I know that throughout this room, there are tons of you who have ongoing health issues. But I want you to know something. God is with you. He's going to lift you up and restore you and protect you. He's all that you need. And if God believes in his will that you will need to be healed, he'll heal you. And if within his perfect will he decides that healing is not for you, but that in some way you will be a ministry to others as people see how you navigate certain issues in your life, then he will allow that navigation to take place. But he will never abandon you. That is the one abiding truth. And you see this in this study of David, uh, that, that you see it. He will never abandon you. He never abandoned David. Fifteen years. Fifteen years of being pursued and God never abandoned him. And he never let Saul get him. He never let Saul take over, even when Saul surrounds him. And you're going to see in the next chapter, Samuel 23, Saul will surround him around the town. There'll be no way out. And God delivers David. And he did that his whole life going back to Goliath. You see that. And so here's the thing, as you understand this, this message and this lesson and these psalms, you can trust God no matter how dark things may get in your life. That's important. No matter how dark things get in your life, you can still trust God. He will be there for you. He won't abandon you. He won't walk away from you. He will be there. But the problem is, are we with him? Are we with him? Or do we assume He's with us, like Mary and Joseph did, remember? And they only found out three days later, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? We assumed he was with us. You assume that Jesus is with us. Have you had a prayer life, being close to Jesus? Have you talked to Jesus? Have you spoken to Jesus? Have you studied the scripture? Have you asked for God's word in your life? Have you asked for his will in your life? I said to somebody this morning, we were talking about developing that kind of relationship. Uh, and this person was saying to me that, that he... He wants to develop that kind of relationships, but finds it somewhat difficult uh, to do what I do, which is really have an ongoing communication of a hundred times a day, and probably a thousand times, I just say a hundred, of actually just speaking to God about everything. All right? And I'm not putting myself on an uh, altar. That's the last thing in the world I want to do. All I tell you about is my weaknesses. But I need to do this. I need to speak to God. And when you get to the point, finally, when you have turned your life over to him, when you have submitted your will to him, where you don't make the plans any longer, you got that? You don't make the plans. You want to be serving God. You want God to use you in ministry. When you finally say this prayer, Lord, I'll go, I'll do whatever you want, lead me. And you mean it, he will do it. When you get out of the way, get out of the way, God will lead you. Uh, and what does that mean? It means developing an ongoing prayer life, an ongoing communication, asking him in every way of your life, wherever you are, walking, driving, eating, in this class, even in this class while you're hearing me speak, you should be saying to God, Lord, speak to my heart. Lord, speak to my heart. Show me the issues in my heart that I need to address. Show me my shortcomings, Lord. Help me to address my shortcomings. Help me to have more love. Help me to have more mercy. Do you make those kind of prayers? Because you should. Because God wants you to say that. 
He wants you to speak like that. And that's why we teach you about the Holy Spirit, understanding what the power of the Holy Spirit is, the very enervating sense of God in your heart that was sealed with you the day that you accepted Jesus Christ. But the problem with most of us is this. We've spent all of our life going like this, turn that down, turn it down, pilot light down, I don't want too much. I don't want too much power in my life. I don't want to be, because the next thing you know, I'm a flake. I'm afraid I'm going to start talking like John Garippa. <laughs> the last thing in the world John Garippa thought was that he'd be talking like John Garippa. All right? If you asked John Garippa 10 years ago, 15 years ago, would John Garippa be talking like this? I told you I never got up and said a word in church. I never said a word in church. Why? Because I felt that I was not righteous or holy enough to get up and speak about God. Who could me? 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 I can't do this, God. I'm not worthy to speak about you. I never spoke up in church. Sure, I had a grandfather that was a minister. I had a father that was minister. They were holy men. I wouldn't get up in church. I never got up and spoke in church about God. Never. Oh, I'd be the church organist. I'd do a lot of other things. I'd be supportive, but I would not speak about God. It's only when, I, when God visited me a second time when I realized it's not about my righteousness. It's not about your righteousness. It's not about your holiness. Jesus died on the cross and covered you with his blood to make you righteous in the eyes of God. You got that? Give me an amen on that. Amen. All right? You understand that? You're not righteous. You're not going to heaven because you've led a good life or you're a good person or you have a good personality or you've given lots of money. You're going to heaven because Jesus died for you. And when God sees you, he sees you through the filtering lens of Jesus Christ. And that's why a guy like John Garippa can get up here and speak when ultimately I recognized it's not about me, God. It's not about me. It's not about my righteousness. My righteousness is as filthy rags. I'm full of warts and shortcomings. And somehow, Lord, you still decided that you would use me in some way. And that's what God will do with each and every one of you. When you submit, when you put your face in the dust, when you say, God, it's about you. And I promise you, he will be with you. He will never abandon you. He will never forsake you. No matter how dark the days are, no matter how much persecution and suffering you see, no matter how dire the diagnosis is from the doctor, he will be with you. Can I get an amen? amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for the words that you've given us today. The life of David, Father, is so meaningful to us as he see a man who struggles with the same issues that we do in so many ways the persecutions and the suffering, the abandonment, the depression, and yet you sustained him and ultimately made him king of Israel and ultimately put him in the line of Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, what a great God you are. Continue to be with us and let this lesson grow every day in our lives as we get closer to you. Protect our men, be with them, and bring them back to continue the study of your word on Monday. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Bless you.